Around the turn of the 20th century, Western settlers still hadn't explored the vast, desolate expanse of northern Canada. A few hardy, adventurous, and greedy men planned to change that. They were prospectors. They had two ways to penetrate the wilderness, on foot or by water. Impatient gold seekers preferred the much faster, more dangerous water route. The native tribes advised prospectors to avoid a certain stretch of the South Nahani River in Canada's Northwest Territories. Those who ignored those warnings realized their potentially fatal mistake as soon as they laid eyes on a section known as the Splits. The water gushed at breakneck speed, giving the paddlers no time to navigate around log jams, submerged rocks, and gravel bars. Surviving the trip required a sturdy vessel, guts, and a whole lot of luck. The few prospectors who made it through the splits entered Nahani Valley, a foggy subarctic gap in the Mackenzie Mountains. Anyone lucky enough to lay eyes on it breathed a sigh of relief. According to rumors, the area was packed with gold. But the local tribesmen weren't just afraid of getting past the splits. They were afraid of the valley itself and the evil that lurked inside it. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals by Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Nahani Valley, a remote area with a reputation for evil. At the turn of the 20th century, when Western settlers ventured into it to search for gold, their misadventures and horrifying deaths became legendary proof of the valley's malevolence. Today, we'll cover the chilling stories that have given Nahani Valley's most famous features their names, Dead Men Valley and Headless Creek. Next episode, we'll discuss why so many 20th century prospectors died in Nahani Valley. The region could be populated by a homicidal tribe of indigenous people or prehistoric monsters, or perhaps the greed that infects all gold hunters drove a few to murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal... Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Long before Western settlers spread into what is now northern Canada, the indigenous First Nations people populated the area. Although they split into many different tribes, they referred to themselves collectively as Dene, which roughly translates to people. The Dene lived throughout the harsh mountainous region, but they almost uniformly avoided the stretch of high-altitude river canyons now known as Nahani Valley. According to Dene legend, 
An aggressive tribe called the Naha used to populate this area. The Naha liked to sweep down from their mountain dwellings to attack the Dene who lived below. Some victims even claimed to see the Naha eating the flesh of their victims. After years of deadly raids, the lowland Dene had finally had enough. They climbed up to a Naha settlement, intending to strike back. When the warriors reached Naha teepees, they rushed the camp. But to their shock, no one emerged from the tents. The campfires crackled. Weapons, clothes, and food all sat in the shelters. But there were no people. The Dene warriors looked at each other unsettled. The air felt polluted with what they called bad medicine. So the group fled back to their lowland homes, and they never saw the Naha again. From then on, no one ventured up to that particular area of the Mackenzie Mountains. At least, no one advised it. Occasionally, young, reckless hunters entered the area and didn't return. Those who did brought home eerie tales. At night, hunched over a campfire, these hunters heard whales echoing off the craggy rocks of Nahani Valley. Some claimed to see groups of menacing woolly giants emerging from caves along the canyon walls. These monsters, they said, considered the valley theirs and devoured anyone who entered it. Others saw strange tracks in the snow and soil of the riverbanks. They resembled the footprints of prehistoric monsters like mastodons. A few explorers even hiked down the mountain with proof. Enormous tusks with fresh hair and skin still clinging to them. Perhaps they'd just slain one of the last living woolly mammoths on Earth. Some adventurers saw a different ancient creature. A massive man-eating wolf. The ferocious predator unnerved its prey with its fearsome howls. Still others witnessed another monster, a diminutive but bloodthirsty half-man, half-ape creature. This bearded, club-carrying beast defended his territory with bone-crushing violence. These legends circulated for generations among the Dene and eventually trickled out to the Western settlers who arrived in northern Canada throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. The new white men took the warnings to heart. Few ventured into the area. But a more potent rumor made the risk of traveling into the valley more alluring. The promise of gold. Just before the turn of the 20th century, tales of the gold-rich Klondike region which is west of the Northwest Territories, sent treasure hunters swarming into Canada. These so-called stampeders hoped to strike it rich with their pans and pickaxes, but not everyone got lucky. So some of those who came up empty-handed traveled further east to the Nahani Valley. One of the first to venture into the dangerous river valley and live to tell the tale was the McLeod family. The patriarch, a Scottish immigrant named Murdoch MacLeod, worked at Fort Liard in the foothills of the Mackenzie Mountains. The fort was an outpost of Hudson's Bay Company, which traded furs for food, textiles, and ammunition. The matriarch of the clan, whose name has been lost to history, had either both white and First Nations ancestry or was fully Dene. As the MacLeod children grew up in the mid to late 1800s, they undoubtedly heard tales of the creatures that prowled the mountains. But they still played in the wilderness, learning survival skills from frontiersmen and their Dene relatives and friends. 
When the oldest sons, Willie and Frank, reached manhood, they were accomplished outdoorsmen. Around the turn of the century, another of Murdoch's sons named Fred took over his father's post as chief factor at Fort Liard. And he was set to do so just as the first stampeders began to swarm into Fort Liard, gathering supplies to pull riches from the earth. Surely the lure of that gold must have tempted the brothers. Little did they know, an opportunity was about to land on their doorstep. Sometime in 1900, an unfamiliar indigenous man walked into Fort Liard. But one look at him and Fred knew he wasn't like the other Dene who frequented his establishment. He wore only a weathered caribou skin, a traditional fashion that had become outdated. He carried very few possessions with him, none of them furs. But he was still looking to trade. The man reached into the medicine bag around his neck and pulled out several sizable pieces of gold. Fred could hardly believe it. Nuggets that size indicated a massive strike. Fred knew that the man probably wouldn't be inclined to share the location of his treasure trove. But hoping to win his visitor over, Fred offered him a cup of sweet tea and a pipe filled with tobacco. After some questioning, the foreigner would only say the gold came from Nahani Valley. It wasn't much of a lead, but it sent Fred's mind racing. Perhaps the visitor was a member of the legendary warmongering Naha tribe. As soon as the man left, Fred wanted to abandon his post at Fort Liard and take to the trail. Even this vague promise of gold was tempting. But his better sense kept him in the warmth and safety of the fort. He'd be a fool to give up his steady job to enter a forest full of God knows what, to chase down what amounted to little more than a rumor of wealth. But as the years passed, Fred never forgot the stranger's visit. He felt inescapably drawn to the promise of Nahani Valley. And fate was about to tempt him again. Sometime in 1903, Fred had another unusual indigenous visitor. This one introduced himself as Little Nahani. He, too, pulled gold nuggets out of his bag, which was made of moose skin, to pay for his goods. This time, Fred pressed hard for information, and it paid off. Little Nahani said his gold came from Bennett Creek. Fred had heard of this waterway, but likely had never been there. It ran through the heart of Nahani Valley. Fred was now certain that the region concealed a rich vein of gold just waiting to be found. He wrote to his brother Willie, who then contacted Frank. Both brothers jumped at the opportunity. Perhaps they thought the disturbing stories about Nahani Valley were just a decoy to keep Westerners away from the richest vein of gold in the Canadian North. No matter their reasoning, in the fall of 1903, Willie and Frank left their lives and careers behind to venture into the unknown wilderness. They had no idea what awaited them, but hoped it would be rivers sparkling with treasure. They were right. They would find fortune. But something else would find them as well. Coming up, Murder in the Nahani Valley. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. 
Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast Limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. Generations of Dene mostly avoided the Nahani Valley, fearing rumors of monsters, cannibals, and curses. But the Klondike Gold Rush brought in more adventurers to the region in search of treasure. In the fall of 1903, Willie and Frank McLeod chased a lead from a man who appeared to be a member of a long-lost tribe that had once roamed the region. The brothers trekked along the Liard River up into the Mackenzie Mountains until they emerged into the Nahani Valley. The journey by land took a long time, but it ensured they wouldn't lose their lives on the rapids. Once they arrived in the valley, they weren't entirely sure where to find the creek that little Nahani had mentioned. So they just panned at the first convenient spot. They survived on the mountain through the winter, eating whatever game they could find and skimming the creeks for gold as often as they could. Their pans captured numerous flakes, even some bean-sized nuggets, and luckily, there was no sign of any of the horrors said to inhabit Nahani. When the spring thaw came, the brothers emerged from the wilds, thinner and more unkempt, but with grins on their faces. They had struck some gold. Willie and Frank forged their biggest pieces of gold into a chain which they gifted to Fred. Without him, they never would have gone prospecting. Then they squandered their remaining riches on rounds of drinks and poker. Spending didn't bother them. Willie and Frank were both confident there was a lot more gold to be had. In January 1904, the siblings made another harvesting trip. This time, they brought their younger brother, Charlie. Together, they entered Nahani Valley using the Flat River, a tributary of the South Nahani River. They met a group of Dene already panning along the Nahani. The McLeod brothers knew several of them from dealings at Fort Liard. The Dene showed the brothers their gold. Nuggets worth about $3 apiece, or approximately $90 today. But they refused to tell the McLeods where exactly the gold came from. The McLeods spent the next several weeks panning in the rivers and creeks near where they'd met them. But they had little success. Eventually, they relocated to the mouth of Bennett Creek, the one little Nahani had mentioned to Fred back in 1903. Now, they probably didn't know they were following Fred's lead. At the time, maps of the smaller waterways weren't reliable. They likely picked this stream entirely by chance. But when they arrived, they knew they'd come upon something special. From then on, the stream became known as Gold Creek. 
The brothers pulled pan after pan of sediment, each one sparkling with treasure. They carefully separated flakes from the creek gravel and gathered the pieces into containers. They worked continuously into late fall 1904. The brothers prioritized prospecting over hunting, so they ate through the majority of their supplies. Without any backup rations, they risked starvation if they stayed out in the elements much longer. As winter fell, they realized they had to once again trek down the mountain and back to the fort. Facing an arduous hike to the lowlands, the brothers decided to chance the river. It was treacherous, but they were tired and low on food. The promise of a warm fire and a hot meal made the rapids seem like a more worthwhile risk. They constructed a makeshift boat and loaded it with all their precious cargo, the last of their rations, the season's gold, and themselves. They managed to navigate some rapids, but at a particularly hazardous stretch called the Cascade of the Thirteen Steps, their boat capsized. Willie, Frank, and Charlie all made it ashore, but the rushing water took their supplies and most of their gold. Days later, when the brothers staggered back into Fort Liard, they were skeletal and exhausted. They only had one prize to show for nearly a year's worth of work, a tiny bottle of gold shards. Willie had shoved it into his waistband before the boat tipped. This was now the second time the McLeods had a brush with riches, only to lose it all. All the brothers wanted was to redeem themselves with another trek into the valley. But with nothing to show after two attempts, they struggled to find anyone willing to give them credits to cover the necessary supplies. So they took on positions with the Hudson's Bay Company to earn the capital. It was painfully slow going. The wages were meager. The brothers watched months pass as their savings grew at a pitifully slow rate. But good fortune was about to intercede yet again. In 1905, while managing a Hudson's Bay Company outpost in Fort Providence, Fred McLeod received a boatload of supplies from an adventurous Scottish steamboat engineer named Robert Weir. During the course of business, Robert noticed the flash of the golden chain that Fred's brothers had gifted him. Intrigued, the Scotsman questioned Fred about its origins. Fred recounted his brother's saga of success and tragedy. And naturally, he mentioned that they were currently preparing for another prospecting expedition, but lacked the necessary supplies. This kind of insider information felt impossible to resist. Robert traveled to Fort Simpson, where Willie and Frank were both working, and made the brothers a proposition. He would cover the cost of the supplies as long as he could accompany them to the valley. The McLeods were open to the offer, even from a foreign stranger. They'd do anything to get back to Nahani. While Willie and Frank quit their jobs and began preparing for their third prospecting trip, Charlie decided to hang back and not join his brothers. Around the spring of 1905, Willie, Frank, and Robert hiked into the Mackenzie Mountains, full of hope. This would be the expedition that made them rich. But back at Fort Liard, spring turned to fall, which turned to winter, and neither the brothers nor the Scotsmen returned. At first, Fred and the rest of the McLeod family didn't worry. Willie and Frank had spent winters out in the elements before. They imagined the two brothers struck such a rich find 
They didn't want to leave until it was tapped dry. But after a full year had passed, Fred grew concerned. He arranged a search party in the spring of 1906. Unfortunately, as they ascended the mountains, snowfall and icy cold temperatures hampered their progress. When they could go no further, they were forced to retreat off the mountain. Yet another year passed with no sign or word of Willie, Frank, or Robert. Fred and his family grew increasingly worried. About two years after Willie and Frank disappeared into the wilderness during an early thaw in 1907, news finally reached the lowlands. It wasn't good. Someone had found an abandoned canoe trapped in a logjam on the South Nahani River. It looked a lot like the canoe Willie, Frank, and Robert had taken on their trip. It felt like confirmation of the McLeod family's worst fears. Willie and Frank were dead. But Charlie, the only other McLeod who had ventured into Nahani Valley, couldn't accept the news. He needed to know what happened to his brothers and to Robert, the stranger they'd so readily trusted. It took Charlie about a year to gather the supplies and support he needed for yet another expedition. But by May 1908, he began the long trek upriver with a robust search party that included his brother, a member of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, and three other experienced outdoorsmen. They kept to the Nahani Riverbank, assuming this was the missing prospector's most likely route. Eventually, they noticed a few saplings and bushes that had been slashed by an axe. Someone had cut a clearing. As they investigated, Charlie noticed a dog sled runner on the ground. Someone had penciled a message into it. We have found a fine prospect. It's unclear whether Frank, Willie, and Robert had a dog sled with them, but Charlie recognized the scribblings as his brother's handwriting. Hope rang through his veins. Perhaps Willie and Frank were still nearby, harvesting gold. But the search team found no other signs of habitation in the vicinity, so they moved on upriver. It wasn't long before they discovered a similar clearing. Off the riverbank, they uncovered a camp that had long since been abandoned. The remnants of a campfire sat in the middle of the clearing. On either side of it, a pair of decaying woolen blankets barely concealed their contents. Two human skeletons. Charlie took a deep breath. He nudged the blankets aside to see if he could identify the bodies. But when he did, he had to look away. Both corpses were missing their heads. Coming up, Charlie McLeod investigates his brother's deaths. Now back to the story. Willie and Frank McLeod made multiple prospecting expeditions into the Nahani Valley. Their final trip was in 1905 with a Scottish ship engineer named Robert Weir. In 1908, after Willie and Frank hadn't returned, their younger brother Charlie led a team of men to find out what had happened to them. The search party made a grisly discovery. Two headless skeletons. Charlie examined the bodies further. They were his brothers. He recognized the rotten bits of clothing clinging to their bones and Willie's gold ring still encasing his bony finger. In addition, Frank's gold pocket watch hung from a tree branch nearby. As the group examined the rest of the campsite, they began calling it what it was, a crime scene. One corpse lay on its back, still covered in the blanket. 
It appeared this brother, it's unclear which, had died in his sleep. The other didn't meet such a peaceful end. The corpse was on its belly, with a blanket tangled around itself. One arm was outstretched, apparently reaching for the rifle, still leaning against a spruce tree a few feet away. Charlie and the others speculated that Willie and Frank had both died during some kind of attack in the night. Probably the assailant had killed the first brother in his sleep, and then the next before he could get his hands on a weapon. There wasn't much else at the campsite to indicate who might have ambushed the brothers, or why. All their supplies were stacked neatly nearby, except for their prospecting tools, pickaxes and shovels, which were missing. Presumably, Willie and Frank had left them at a worksite. Charlie knew they had success with prospecting because he spotted several samples of quartz with rich veins of gold at their camp. Clearly, the message on the sled runner hadn't been hyperbole. The brothers had found their fortune. But Charlie wasn't preoccupied with the gold. He continued turning the campsite over for any sign of Robert Weir. Some members of the search party figured that Robert was the murderer. The gold-hungry Scotsman could have killed Willie and Frank to keep their treasure trove for himself. But this theory didn't convince everyone. If Weir had killed the brothers, he surely would have taken the gold at the campsite. And why would he remove their heads? Stranger still, the search party couldn't find the missing skulls. Eventually, Charlie and his brother gave up and buried all that was left of Willie and Frank. From then on, this stretch along the South Nahani River became known as Deadman Valley, and the waterway beside their camp became known as Headless Creek. The unsettling story of Willie and Frank McLeod's murders might have reinforced the superstitions about Nahani Valley. A few prospectors took it as a warning to stay away, but for most, it had the opposite effect. The grisly account of the brothers' homicide became a footnote to what many stampeders considered the real headline. The brothers had struck it rich. During the remainder of 1908 and beyond, even more treasure hunters tried their luck in Nahani Valley. Legends be damned. One of these frontiersmen, Martin Jorgensen, made arrangements to venture up into the Mackenzie Mountains in 1909 or 1910. He was well-liked by Dene and white settlers alike, and known to reject any of the superstitions surrounding the valley. As one version of the story goes, Poole Field, who ran a local trading post, provided supplies for Jorgensen's expedition on credit. Field had been in Charlie McLeod's search party and present when Willie and Frank's bodies were discovered. Field believed that Jorgensen could find the incredible vein that the McLeod brothers had called their fine prospect. Encouraged by Field's support, Jorgensen ignored a local journalist who warned him against the many perils that awaited him in Nahani Valley. The prospector laughed as he pushed the canoe into the river's current. Three years passed. Field heard no word from his investment and likely assumed Jorgensen had failed or was dead. But one day in 1913, a Dene trapper stopped into an outpost in the Yukon with a letter. It was addressed to Billy Atkinson, a close friend of Field. However, Atkinson was in jail at the time, so the workers at the trade post recommended sending it to his ex-wife Mary, who was now married to Field. Upon receiving it, 
Mary then showed the contents of the letter to Field. The letter contained a map to Jorgensen's Riverside cabin. The brief message asked Atkinson to make haste. Jorgensen needed help bringing his gold back down to the lowlands. Because Atkinson was still in prison, he entrusted Field to make the trek. So Field and a few companions set out to find Jorgensen in 1914, but they found nothing. Field made another expedition attempt in 1915. This time, they made it all the way into the Nahani Valley. In September, they used Jorgensen's map to find his cabin near a small creek. Except the cabin wasn't there. Field's expedition found a heap of old ashes. Jorgensen's shelter had burned to the ground some time ago. Then they found Jorgensen himself, or rather, what was left of him. Records don't agree on the exact location of the prospector's body. Some claim his corpse was sprawled on its side near the creek and an upturned bucket, as if he was trying to put out the fire when something attacked. Others say Jorgensen tried to flee before his assailants struck him down, about 65 yards from his cabin. In this version, Jorgensen died with a loaded rifle in his hands and two spent shells beside him. He'd fired shots at someone, or something, before he perished. The state of the body is another point of contention. Some say it was only partially decomposed, while others maintain that it had been picked down to the bone. But most every storyteller agrees on one detail. Jorgensen's corpse didn't have a head. And just like with the McLeods before him, the missing skull was never found. Jorgensen's death added to the rumors swirling around Nahani Valley. The McLeod brothers' beheading could be blamed on their untrustworthy ally, but the newest death revealed an unnerving pattern that couldn't be so easily explained. Prospectors who struck gold then lost their heads. In the next decade, the number of stampeders entering the region would rise and fall. A group of prospectors came into the valley during a small gold rush in 1922 and during another in 1929. During the time of this second gold rush, one man figured he might be able to outsmart any alleged curse. The McLeods and Jorgensen had died after harvesting gold, but nothing untoward had ever befallen anyone who collected Nahani's other valuable resource, fur. In 1930, a trapper named Phil Powers set up a cabin and several animal snares in the valley. He hoped that after a few seasons in the wilderness, he'd collect enough furs to generate a nest egg for him and his fiancée. But Powers failed to turn up at a scheduled rendezvous with his betrothed in the spring of 1932. She raised the alarm and convinced members of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police to trek up into the mountains in search of her lost love. During their trip, Poolfield and another companion joined them. Eventually, on the bank of a creek feeding the flat river, they saw the remains of a cabin. The familiar scene sent a chill down Poolfield's spine. Just like Martin Jorgensen's rough shelter, this cabin had burned to the ground. The Mounties estimated that the disaster had occurred sometime during the previous winter. Porcelain kettles inside the structure had melted into a single puddle. This meant the fire had burned at incredible temperatures, yet somehow 
it hadn't spread to any of the timber around it. But it had reached its apparent victim. Among the ashes, the party discovered a set of charred bones they believed belonged to Phil Powers. Once again, the skull seemed to be missing. Some claim that the search team never found his head. Others say that it was among Powers' remains near his feet, suggesting that he was beheaded before being burned. In other versions, his skeleton was so badly charred that only a few pieces could be identified. But there was one consistent detail that made the scene even more eerie. Powers had set up a stockpile of furs near the cabin. It was untouched. And a piece of wood nailed to the side of the stockpile had a message penciled on it. Phil Powers, his finish, August 1932. Powers had seemingly died in a fire last winter. And yet, the message was dated recently. The mystery surrounding Powers' death added to Nahani Valley's lore, and it wasn't the final tragedy. At least one more miner died in the region in 1945. As legend has it, he also lost his head. It's impossible to say exactly how many headless victims have been found in the area because the number is so disputed, but regardless, it's too many to be coincidence. The region's death count reaches far beyond these legends. Through the mid-1900s, others have disappeared while hunting or prospecting in Nahani Valley. Inexplicable plane crashes and UFO sightings have since occurred. To this day, the region is wild and undeveloped. Some areas aren't even open to the public. Officially, this is to preserve the fragile ecosystem and sacred Dene land. But some say it also protects people from the evil lurking within. Next time, we'll try to solve the strange murders of the McLeod brothers, Martin Jorgensen, Phil Powers, and the other victims. Perhaps the ancient Dene legends are true, and a prehistoric predator prowls its River Valley home, taking revenge on anyone seeking to profit from its resources. Or maybe Nahani was home to a different kind of killer, one that isn't supernatural, but is powered by an evil force, greed. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two on the Nahani Valley. For more information on Nahani Valley, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Legends of Nahani Valley by Hammerson Peters extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 
Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.